Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg, and I am one of the co-lead pastors here. It is absolutely wonderful to see each one of you, uh, and I think it is good for us to all be together in the same place engaging with God. Uh, will you please join me as I pray? Dear God, we give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. God, I do pray that as you have gathered us together this morning, that you would speak to us in that way that only you can, that, that, that pulls us together as individuals, but, but connects us together as your people. Um, and God, that you have a specific thing to speak to us this morning. And so I pray that our uh, eyes and our ears and our hearts would be opened up, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us, that we could be attentive to you and what you have to say to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week four of our summer sermon series where we're exploring the gospel of John. We started out by looking at this reality that Jesus is in all of our beginnings, whether that's a new job or a relationship, down to the very breath you are taking right now. Jesus is in those beginnings. We also looked at the role of the presence and movement of the Holy Spirit and how he's transforming us and is also a part of those beginnings. And last week we looked at some moments where Jesus was inviting some people to come and follow him, to come and see what he is really like and who he really is. And in that we saw how Jesus was practicing what we called faithful presence. And we defined faithful presence as this. It's a perpetual practice of careful responsiveness to the Holy Spirit speaking through your context. This basically means that Jesus, in his being attentive to the movement of the work and the Holy Spirit in him, was aware of the people and the places that he was interacting with. And this played out in how he invited people to participate with him in the life he was living. And so some examples of faithful presence would include knowing your neighbors, knowing what shops and stores and services are in your neighborhood, knowing what needs are in your neighborhood, both in your relationships with the people and in your relationships with the space that you are in. So it's really seeing where God is moving in those spaces and the people you are around and then partnering, working with God in those areas where he's working out his redemption, his reconciling of all things. And so we went through that and then we ended with this challenge to write down three names of people that you wanted to invite to church. And I want to thank everyone who did that. And I also want to thank the people who turned those connection cards in with that information on there. Uh, We have a great list of people that we are praying for now. And so thank you. It was a big challenge for us to to do that, I think, and to take a step out. I think Jesus, we said last week, is sort of asking us to come and see what he might do uh, with, with the ideas and the dreams that we have. But one of the things I noticed for me might be for you also, is when we start talking about these things, we start talking about dreams and visions and the mission of God and the big movements, uh, I start to feel small. And especially when I start uh, pulling uh, stories from the Bible, and even though at times I may air out and I may just wholeheartedly acknowledge that the disciples and the people in the Bible, lots of them had lots of faults, but I still somehow see my life and I go, ah, I just don't know if my life can look like their lives. And especially when we start doing, saying things like Jesus is asking us to live like him. How are we supposed to do that? Well, one of the things I love about today's passage that we're going to look at is that it's Jesus and these moments where he is dealing with those, some of those exact fears and those exact feelings. 
And so we're going to be looking at John 6, 1 through 15. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there, or it'll be up on the screen uh, behind me in just a second. I do want to let you know that in your bulletin, there's some space for you to write some notes. And at the bottom, there are some questions that we're going to answer at the end, but you can totally look at them ahead of time. It's not like a big spoiler or anything. So, uh, so here we go, John 6, 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near, and when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish, and when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Of all the miracles we read about in the Gospels, aside from Jesus' resurrection, this is the only one that is recorded in all four Gospels. There must be something about this that caught the Gospel writer's attention. Now, when I read through this, I tried to think about it, and it came to me pretty quickly. One of the reasons is because he just fed 5,000 people out of nothing. Right? He had pretty much nothing. And it says 5,000 people. It also says 5,000 men. And so there was probably more because we know that there was at least one boy there. So there's probably more. So chances are it was 5,000 plus people. And so Jesus, up to this point, we've seen him heal a couple people. He's turned some water into wine at a wedding. He's began to get in some arguments with the Pharisees. But this was 5,000 plus people. I think it was also significant because eating and sharing a meal in the Bible has a lot of meaning behind it. Now, I understand that feeding 5,000 people is a lot different than sitting down with some friends uh, at a table. But there are some things that I think we can look at from the Old Testament about eating uh, that I think will help uh, enlighten us a little bit on how important it was. Uh, In the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes 8.15, we see that it's a sign of prosperity. It says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteousness who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So there's this sense of being able to eat inspires gladness. There's something about it that is good and is a sign of God's blessing. We read about in Deuteronomy 8, 6 through 9, it says this, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. 
It's also seen as a reflection of intimacy. And this is from the New Testament. Jesus goes and eats at this guy. uh, His name is Zacchaeus. He goes and eats at his house. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And as he's doing this, the people around start sort of uh, grumbling and giving Jesus some grief and saying that he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And they say that because eating with someone mattered. It showed connection, expressed intimacy, a stance of being with someone. We get to see from Jesus in Revelation 3.20, It says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Eating together means something. It shows a certain position. It shows a certain stance to a person. And a lot can happen over a meal. Uh, A friend of mine named John, who lives in uh, Silverton, Oregon, uh, started, uh, he and his church started doing some things to try to bring people together in their community. And one of the things they did was a dinner. We're going to have uh, a weekly meal together and see what happens. And their hope, they started in June of 2009, their hope was to be able to sustain 25 meals per week. So they wanted to feed 25 people once a week. So if you do the math, 25 meals a week times 52 weeks, 1,300 meals a year. And then they projected out five years and said, well, that would be 6,500 meals over five years. It's not too bad. In June of 2014, they celebrated their fifth anniversary, but they also celebrated serving their 100,000th meal, which if you average that out is quite different. It's 384 meals per week instead of 25. What happened? What went from... Boy, we are just hoping we can, if we can put together enough to feed 25 people once a week, that would be more than we could even dream of. How did that change to 384 per week? Well, the people started talking to each other. They sat down over a meal and they shared everything from family life to political issues in the town. And one of their sayings that this church and the people who are putting this together came up with is that, We trust each other into speech, and we listen each other into trust. So they build trust by listening, by sitting down and letting someone tell their story and not jumping in and saying, oh, I know exactly what that's like because I did this and it's just like that, right? Not just sitting and waiting for an opening to get our thing in, but actually sitting and letting that story have its place and letting that person have honor because of their story. And then out of that place, out of that place of building trust, then they can speak. And now people from all over are showing up. People from all different kinds of walks of life. The mayor of the town, who at the time was the first transgender mayor, is there each week. And they're sharing, and they're building things together. And now people are volunteering together. And it doesn't matter who they are. They're coming together, and they're seeing this redemptive work happening. The writer of this gospel, John, pays attention to some different things than the other gospel writers do. First, he names some of the disciples. None of the other gospel writers in their accounts of this name specifically any of the other disciples. John also mentions the Passover. None of the other ones do that. More detail is given to the food. Specifically, we find out what type of bread is being gathered up here from this boy. We have these other string of phrases that let us know what's going on. 
Jesus has been healing some people. He crosses over the other side. These people who had seen him heal people were like, oh, that's awesome. And so they followed Jesus along the shore, got over to the other side. Jesus goes up on a hill. He looks out and sees 5,000 people approaching. I don't know if you've ever seen 5,000 people approach you. I haven't, right? I can look across this room. Sometimes there's 80 to 100 in here at this time, right? So you can do the math and figure out how many more of you there would need to be to make 5,000. Okay, and if you can imagine the disciples sitting there, especially this guy Philip, and Jesus says, hey, look. And Philip looks, and there's 5,000 people, and Jesus says, so what do you think we should do to feed those people? Oh, man. Someone could come up and ask me that about this group, and I'd be like, oh, you're crazy. Right? We don't have it. Go downstairs. We have some food down there. That'll take care of it. Right? But so these guys are sitting there, and this moment comes up. Okay, right before that. Uh, John tells us the Passover is at hand. He feels we need to know that. Some commentators say that he's simply giving us a place marker in the, in the season. We can kind of know what time of year this is taking place. Uh, other commentators say that he's tying it into much more, that he's saying that Jesus is taking that, that, that Passover festival and he's kind of fulfilling it. He's saying, I'm going to do this in a new way and do something that that Passover festival has always pointed to but could never really do. I'm going to Bring real nourishment. I'm going to bring real food. Not just in what I provide you, but in myself. So Jesus sees the crowd, asks Philip for help. Now Philip uh, is from this town called Bethsaida, which when we read in the Gospel of Luke is actually where they're at. They cross over the river. John doesn't tell us this, but Luke says they're in Bethsaida. And so Jesus asks Philip, where can we get some food? Which makes sense because Philip's from there. It would be like if you've ever gone to visit a city that you've never been to, but you have some friends that live there, you might call them up and say, hey, I'm going there. Can you think of any good places to eat? What are the things I have to see when I come and visit your town? Well, Philip, Jesus said, is is doing this to test Philip. Uh, He says he already knows what he's going to do. And I want to talk for just a second about that because a lot of uh, scholars will say that it's, it's not really a question. Jesus already knows exactly what he's going to do. I'm going to take this kid's bread, and I'm going to make the fish, and I'm going to multiply it. So Philip is just kind of this drive-by question that doesn't really have any meaning. And I, I aggressively disagree with that. Uh, I think that Jesus tries to involve people in legitimate ways. And so I think he's genuinely asking, Philip, you're from this place. What do you have to say about this? Right? What does Jesus know? Jesus knows, I think God's doing something here. I think you're going to end up feeding these people. I'm inviting you to come and be part of that. What do you have to say about this? I'm giving you legitimate impact on this situation. Philip, in great honesty, says, you're crazy. right? Where are we going to get food for these people? First of all, if we could find someone to get that food from, how would we ever afford it? And his concern is completely legitimate. Do you see the thousands of people that are here, Jesus? This is a logical response to this dilemma. But sometimes logic alone isn't enough. It needs a partner to kind of help it out a bit. Several years ago, I was in uh, Best Buy with my oldest daughter. And at the time, she was about five. And we were in the laptop section, and we saw this... uh, computer that was a lot of bright different colors this laptop and she was instantly like papa can we take that for me Uh, and I went into good parent mode and tried to explain to her well you're not really old enough for that right now and money and blah 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 and she was like but I want it like papa I really want that 
And I said, well, that's going to cost $300, and I don't have the money needed to buy that. And she said, yes, you do. I was like, no, no, I don't. But to her, I did, because every time we go into a store, I pull out this card, and I slide it, and we take bags of stuff home. I can, in her mind, whenever we go into a store, we get whatever we want, right? And we never have problems. It's just the way it works. So in her mind, it's like, yeah, pull that card out and slide that thing. You have money. I said, no, no. I said, and if you want it, you need to pay for it, right? Because that's the next good parenting thing, right? You shift it on to them. Say, no, you go buy it. You don't have enough money for that. And she said, yes, I do. I was like, what? Right? She believed that this was possible. And this, my point in this is that Philip is thinking, he's got this logical way of thinking. Look, Jesus, I see all these people. I hear you asking me this question. I'm giving you an honest answer. I don't see how we can do this. But Philip may be not expecting or prepared for Jesus to do something more. These guys have only been with Jesus for a while. And again, the things they've seen, although miraculous, he's healed a couple of people. He's turned water into wine. This is 5,000 people that need to eat. How often do we do something similar? Do I do something similar? Where Jesus asks us a question and we try to point out to him both our inadequacy and the general impossibility of the situation. It seems like that could be almost daily for me. Well, there's this other guy there too. His name is Andrew. Andrew kind of jumps out of nowhere and he's got this boy with him who has some food. Now, we don't know how Andrew found this boy. Was he sitting there hearing Jesus and Philip talk and was like, okay, Philip didn't have an answer. I got to start looking. Okay, here's some kid. He seems to have some food. We have no idea how this came about. But he's there with this boy. Now, the Greek word that we translate boy here is, accurately, is more accurately translated little boy. Um, and so uh, scholars estimate maybe between five and eight years old. Uh, and so... Uh, last week we talked about how Andrew shows up three times in the Gospel of John, and each time he's bringing people to Jesus, uh, and, and how that's an awesome way to be remembered. Two of the three times he's identified, he's identified as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And we talked about how at the time John was written, uh, Peter was already kind of a superstar in the faith, and so he maybe lived a little bit in, uh, in, in Peter's shadow. Um, and again, mentioned that this might be like when you go to school, say you're the younger sibling, and your older sibling was really good at sports or really good academically or just really popular or something, and you feel identified all the time by, oh, you're so-and-so's brother or sister. But again, I want to remind you that Andrew, according to the Gospel of John, is someone who's always bringing people to Jesus. Even Peter, who later became the big superstar, was brought to Jesus by Andrew. I think it's a pretty awesome way to be remembered. In fact, later on in John 12... Uh, it's, it's interesting because some uh, Greeks uh, are interacting with Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. And Philip's response is, I'm going to go get Andrew, right? It says Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So we even have Philip who encounters some people and says, oh, you want to know Jesus? The person you need to talk to is Andrew. Andrew can take you to Jesus. So what an awesome way to be remembered. Anyways, back to the boy. Little boy, he has what I'm going to call a picnic lunch. It's five loaves of barley bread. Now, something you need to know about barley bread, Philo, this Jewish philosopher, says this about barley bread. As foodstuff, it is of somewhat doubtful merit, suited for irrational animals and men in unhappy circumstances. Right, right. And adds that the fish is probably there only to make the bread palatable. 
right? So you have this barley bread, right, that is terrible. And the fish is there just so you can eat it. Now, some people think that this shows that the boy maybe came from a poor family, um, or it could just be that he had a really bad lunch, right? I don't know if, how many of you remember in elementary school, like it was always great to be someone who had something cool to trade with somebody, right? It was terrible to go to school and open up your lunch bag and go, oh, this is just mine today. There's no way anyone else would ever trade for any of this. So it could be that. Now, it's so interesting to me that John pays attention to some of these details, Time of year, names the disciples, the boy, the barley bread. But when it comes to the miracle, he's very matter-of-fact about it, right? Pays attention to all these things, and then, oh, yeah, and Jesus took these things, gave thanks, and then distributed them to everybody, and did the same with the fish, right? There's not a lot in there about, and it was this way, and he held it this way, and he broke it, and looked up. Like, those are some details that I want. But why does John see these other things as important? We're going to get to that. So Jesus says he does give thanks and he distributes the food. Everyone eats till they're full. They've had enough. Then Jesus says, go gather up the leftovers so there's nothing wasted or lost. We find there's enough to fill 12 baskets. And this could be signifying a ton of things. could be there's, for the disciples to see there's enough for all of you, for all the work you're doing. And then there's enough for you. It could be they're thinking, well, I just came over here with Jesus and I poured my heart out and there's nothing left for me. I did all this work and there's nothing. And Jesus is saying, no, your work, it's going to be there. Trust me, step in and do the work and you're going to be provided for. Don't worry. It could be that there's this connection to the Old Testament about the 12 tribes and this, that, and the other. But the bottom line is at the end of this, there was more than enough for everybody. The people there recognize that something significant has happened and they are aware of this prophet who's going to come from God and is going to do some things. And so we read that Jesus senses that they're amazed at what happened. And he decides he's got to leave because they're going to try and come and force him to be king. Now, maybe they're feeling like, hey, we're 5,000 strong. Although I don't know how that gets communicated in the amount of time that seems to be uh, allowed in this story. Like they're all going to decide, let's go take him and make him king. Uh, but even for 5,000 people, if I had... Some of them had witnessed the healings he had done and some other things. That's why they followed. And now they get here and they see that he's made all this food out of just a little bit. Um, I think it's kind of gutsy to say, we're going to go and make you be king. Right? I, I, think, that takes, uh, I think it takes some, uh, some special kind of attitude. We'll call it that. Uh, but um, what it does seem to imply to me um, is, I think, a realistic picture of how easy it is for us to start to make Jesus be what we want him to be. And how quickly we can do that. These are people who watched him do miracles. They sat around and, and while he did this. And they all of a sudden are like, oh, you're the prophet that's from God. And now we're going to take you and make you what we want you to be. We do that all the time. We take Jesus and try to make him fit our agendas and our motives. And sometimes I wonder when we're sensing, oh, Jesus' presence isn't here, right? In the gospel, sometimes he takes off for a little bit. Something to think about. Um, So Jesus takes off. Uh, Now, I want to look back at this whole thing and try to see what are some of the things that Jesus is doing. Because he's reconciling, he's redeeming, he's inviting people to participate uh, in what he's doing. But he's inviting the least. The disciple who lives in the shadow of his brother a little boy, poor man's lunch. These are the things he's inviting. These are the things that he's bringing into his work. He's being faithfully present both to his disciples, but he's being faithfully present to them because he's also inviting them to be faithfully present. 
It's one thing for us to be faithfully present and then start trying to do everything by ourselves. It's another thing to be faithfully present and say, come along and help. You see Jesus do that. Philip, what do you think we need to do here? He's asking them to get involved. He's asking them to make decisions. He didn't need Peter to jump in and do something. He wasn't looking necessarily for a man who had a huge food cart that came by. He didn't even need someone who had good food. And with what was given, 5,000 plus people not only were fed and satisfied, but decided to try and take Jesus by force and make him their king. This guy, uh, Robert Capon, uh, he says this. Uh, he, he, he starts by saying, uh, he, he quotes 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26. He has not chosen the wise or the mighty or the socially adept, but rather that he has chosen what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise, and what the world considers weak in order to shame the strong, and that God deals out salvation solely through the klutzes and nobodies of the world, through, in short, the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. Part of faithful presence means that we're being invited by Jesus to participate in the work he's doing, and in that we are inviting other people to come and participate in that work. One of the things that always, and I've talked about this before, um, you know, that, that when churches, uh, often when you have a church plant, they are thinking about these things, trying to figure out how do we get people to come here, how do we make connections, and, and all those things. Uh, but sometimes it's not just making connections, it's how you make those connections. And one of the things that we talked about a lot uh, is, is lots of times when a church starts out, they have this idea of we're going to put a coffee shop in our uh, church. Now, I, I want you to make sure that you know that I'm not bashing churches that do that. There's lots of good reasons to do that. In our thinking, we decided not to, and here's why. Um, if you're a church moving into a neighborhood that has no coffee shops nearby, awesome. Open up a coffee shop. Do it. Create a third place where no one, there might be no third places. There might not be any gathering places. Start that. Get that thing going. That's fantastic. Here, within just a mile of us, there are probably 10 different coffee shops. Right? There's lots in every direction. For us to, to come in and say, we're going to start a coffee shop that wouldn't just be open on Sundays, but maybe we'd even have it open during the week. People come and gather here. That'd be awesome. And there's part of that that is very attractive. But how, in terms of our faithful presence, then, are we actually helping the neighborhood flourish when there are all these coffee shops already here? And we'd much rather say, yeah, go to those coffee shops. That's why the staff here, you can find us in Cafe Javasti a lot and now at uh, Sunshine Coffee down a little bit further south because those are places in the neighborhood where people go and hang out. That's where we want to be. I don't want to be sitting in here studying all day. I want to go to those coffee shops, work, get to know some people, meet some people, interact with them, and then start to build some relationships out of that. And at the same time, I'm not taking business away from those other coffee shops by starting my own here. How are we helping those businesses? How are we helping that neighborhood to flourish? What do you have that you are positive is not enough? I think most of us right now would say time. A lot of us feel this crunch of time. When I was growing up, my dad felt this crunch of time. When I, up until I was about six, he uh, worked at a bank, and then he uh, transitioned into um, real estate appraisal. And so he started his own business, worked long hours. Any of you that have started a business, you know that's what it takes, right? Long hours, especially when you're starting. What my dad did was he got up at like five and got me up with him two times a week for a couple years, and we would go to the local YMCA, 
and we would shoot baskets, and we would swim, and we'd run around the track or do whatever for like 45 minutes, and then we'd go to McDonald's, and I'd get a raspberry danish with that delightful glaze on it and an orange juice, and that was our routine, Tuesdays and Thursdays for a couple years. Um, and, and he made time, which he didn't have, right? He got up earlier than he would have got. He could have got up early and gone to work, but he made time to hang out with me. As I got older, we didn't do that as much, but I realized later on in life that, you know, whenever I asked my dad, hey, can you come play catch? He'd say, if he had work to do, if he's working at home, he'd be like, yeah, give me like a minute. And he'd really, it'd be about a minute. He'd be outside. We'd play catch for 20 minutes. He'd say, I got to go finish up stuff. Awesome. He was there. As I got a little bit older, a bunch of friends of mine and I started doing that stuff. My dad, I didn't, wasn't asking him to do that stuff anymore. But the thing that those little moments, those Tuesdays and Thursdays where he didn't have that time, but he made it, and those, time, those 20 minutes here and there to play catch did is as I think back on my life, I can't remember ever feeling like my dad wasn't there. I can't ever remember feeling like my dad wasn't present. There are probably moments he was, but I was so secure in my relationship with him because there's so many times I knew he was there that even at those other times I was like, oh, yeah, but it's still okay. Right? My dad still loves me. Right? My dad still cares for me. Okay, he gave out of something he didn't really have. And that has transferred to me. I don't always have a lot of time. I don't always have as much time as I'd like to give to my kids. And at night, we used to, used to pray with our kids, used to pray for our kids. But I changed that um, and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's fine to do that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless them every night. I'm going to do this thing where I'm going I'm to pronounce a blessing over my kids. There's a, there's a different aspect of acknowledging that we're a priesthood of believers when we start speaking blessings over people. And so we have this thing that we do every night. I take my hand and I make a cross and I say, may the love of God find you and the cross of Christ protect you and the Holy Spirit lead and guide you. And then I pronounce some blessing over them. And it's awesome. It's so cool. I love it. It fits our family. It does great. Sometimes they grab my hand and they put it on their head. It's like they know what to do. One day, probably the worst day I've ever had with my kids. Just everyone was yelling and fighting. And we went to go to bed, and I put them into bed at this time. They were sharing a bedroom in the same room and, uh, and, and tucked them into bed. And then I started to walk out of the room, and they were like, Dad, what about the blessing? And I remember looking back at them and saying, I don't think I have one tonight. Um, because in my heart, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything. I didn't believe that if I started speaking, God would show up, and, and I would have the words to say. My heart felt empty, and so I just told them, I, I don't think I have anything. And they started, like, wailing. Like, they were like, oh, I had never seen them so sad before. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> right, what? It's how important those things are. It's like two minutes every night that we do this. And for them, it caused more sorrow than I had seen from them at that point. And so we sat down and we talked a little bit about the day, and somehow in that, God stirred up some stuff in me, and I found something to say. What can God do with the little bit that you don't believe is enough that could change everything? I'm thinking about this because here we are in Wedgwood and basically on the border of five neighborhoods. 
And that's just where our building is, where we gather each week. But God has called us here. As we've talked about, he's starting some new things. He's asking us to come and see what he could do with, with, the, with the things we have. And I'm just wondering if some of us may be feeling small. Some of us may be feeling like we don't have enough. And that's just this neighborhood. What about our own neighborhoods that are representing the congregation? What about the cul-de-sac you live in, the street, the school, the classroom, your sports team? We could go through a huge list because I think Jesus is asking you to come and see. He's saying, what do you have? And come and see what I can do. Come and see what we can do. I have a couple of questions that I want to ask. Uh, worship team, you could come forward, please. Uh, and if you could write, if you would write your answers down on connection cards, put those in the wood boxes, that'd be awesome. It gives us good ways to pray for you. If not, that's fine too, but I uh, would love it if you did that. So first question, in what ways do you feel like you are the least or the last, the least, the lost, or little? These could be things that you believe about yourself. They could be things that you've heard other people say about yourself. could be things that you don't want to ever tell anyone else about that you feel. It could be things that you fight against. In what ways do you feel like you are the last, the least, the lost, or little? Second, what spaces are you in where you are slash could be practicing faithful presence? So it doesn't have to be somewhere where you, you haven't thought of yet. It could just be someplace where you know you're doing that already. It could be your family. It could be your work. It could be your school. There's tons of places. It could be the grocery store, the coffee shop, wherever it is where you find yourself, you could be faithfully present there. And then the third is what is one thing you could be doing with the people in these spaces where you would be inviting them to participate with you in being faithfully present. And so what I mean by that is not just the idea, oh, I'm going to start a club in this group of people I'm with. But how could you say, hey, what would you think if we started a club? Hey, what would you think if we started this semi-regular gathering of some kind? And, and, and what ideas do you have about that? Could you invite the people who no one else would invite to come and not just be part, but to, to have a say in how things work? Could be throwing a block party. Could be letting your kids plan and help cook or entirely cook dinner one night. I know some of us, that's a, not even a possibility. Um, trust me, it is. Your kids will come up with some fabulous things, and they'll have lots of chocolate in them. Um, uh, for some of you, it could be, I'm not going to organize, plan, or host something, but I'm just going to attend it. Because one of the things that happens, we start to, everyone goes, okay, i got to do this, i got to plan this big, huge. No, no, no. There might be other people already doing that planning and hosting, and you just need to show up and be a person present there. And for some of you, that should feel like a huge relief to hear that. But what are the things, what is one thing you could do? Okay, let's pray, and then the worship team will lead us in, uh, in another song. Again, great God, I give you thanks for this day and your presence in our lives. God, I give you thanks that you do use the lost, the least, the last, and the little. God, that anyone can be your mouthpiece. Anyone can be the, the very presence and, and speak the very word of God. That you call everyone to come and be your children. God, and that there's no sort of levels of, 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 of authority or anything like that within your kingdom. We're all called to be a priesthood of believers. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for the places we're in. 
God, help us to know the history of those places. Help us to know the people in those places. Help us to know our neighbors, our classmates, our colleagues, our coworkers, the baristas at our favorite coffee shop. Help us to know and be a blessing to them. And then help us to be partnering with people. Wherever we see something redemptive happening, God, I pray we would run to it. And I pray we would be just attracted to it and go, oh, that's where God's working. I want to be in what he's doing. And I pray you would stir us to be faithfully present in the places we are. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to do this. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?